Welcome back to the Listener's Commentary on the Gospel of Mark. The Listener's Commentary is a crowdfunded Bible teaching project designed to help you learn and live the Bible right in the context of your everyday life, not only for yourself, but so that you can hopefully share the Bible with other people through Bible studies, sermons, messages, and lessons, all as an effort to help us as God's people follow Jesus better. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. In the overall flow of the Gospel of Mark, at this point in the Gospel, Jesus has been announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God in and through himself and his ministry. He's been teaching the people, healing people. He's been calling disciples to himself. And Mark has emphasized that all of this has demonstrated Jesus' authority. And that the people, the crowds of people that are flocking to him, have recognized that authority. At the same time all that's been going on, Mark has began to show us that conflict with the Pharisees has been mounting. In fact, at the end of the last scene, the Pharisees are conspiring with the Herodians to kill Jesus. Well, now, at this point in the gospel, it's time to move things forward, and Jesus is ready to designate his official representatives for his kingdom mission. Here's the way that unfolds. Verse 7 of Mark chapter 3 says, Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. So the sea, again, is the Sea of Galilee. His ministry has been focusing in the northern part of Israel, around the Sea of Galilee, and all the towns throughout Galilee. So he withdrew to the sea with his disciples. With hostility on the rise, Jesus gets out of town. Uh, and he gets out of town with his disciples. And here shortly, we'll see him name out of this group of disciples, his 12 apostles. And it's important to remember that the apostles are like a subcategory of disciples. Disciples are the large group of all the followers of Jesus, those who have attached themselves to Jesus to learn from him. The apostles will be like an inner circle of disciples appointed to be leaders in Jesus' kingdom. So he withdraws to the sea with his large group of disciples, and here's what happens. And a large multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, a great number of people heard about everything he was doing and came to him. So Jesus is withdrawing uh, to the sea with his disciples. He wants to kind of get away from the pressure and the crowd and the hostility. Doesn't work. This huge crowd of people uh, is is flocking to him. Crowds of people from all different places. Notice what it says, a large multitude from Galilee, which is the region he's been most uh, ministering in and operative in. Also from Judea, Judea and then Jerusalem. That's the southern part of Israel. Judea is the region of the Jews around Jerusalem. And so you have Judea and Jerusalem. You have Idumea. Idumea is only mentioned here in the New Testament. It's actually a Latinized version of the word Edom. And so if you've read through your Old Testament and you've heard about Edom, well, Idumea is a Latinized version of that. In fact, Herod the Great was an Idumean. He was from Idumea. So we've got people from there. That's way down south out in the desert. And then we got people from beyond the Jordan. That's east of the Jordan River. And there's a couple political regions east of the Jordan River, and there's people coming to Jesus from that area. 
And then we have people from the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, which is way up to the north, northwest on the coast. And so you have people from all these different regions, from clear down south in Idumea, way up north, Tyre and Sidon, everything in between. People are coming to him because they've heard about everything he was doing. And so they're flocking to him. And so now he wanted to get away, but there's this large crowd gathered around him and the crowd is pressing in upon him. And so verse nine, he told his disciples to see that a boat would be ready for him because of the masses so that they wouldn't crowd him for he had healed many with the result that all those who had diseases pushed in around him in order to touch him. So you got to picture the scene. All these people, huge crowds of people flocking to Jesus. Jesus is teaching, he's preaching, and he's healing people. Now people are bringing their sick people and they're trying to get close to him and they're pressing in around him. And so Jesus tells his disciples, hey, get a, a small boat ready. This idea of a boat is not a large fishing boat. This particular word means a small boat. Get a small boat ready. And the reason for that is sort of like, crowd control. He wants to actually get in the boat and be able to teach from there. In fact, in chapter four, verse one, we see him doing just that. So that's the purpose of the boat. If he needs to, he can get into it, sit down in the boat, kind of backed away from the crowd so that he can teach the people from the boat. And so here's this crowd pressing in on him. He's healing them and all that. Verse 11, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, that is, uh, people possessed by unclean spirits or people possessed by demons, whenever they saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. And he strongly warned them not to reveal who he was. We've seen this already several times in Mark's gospel where these people possessed by unclean spirits now would declare who Jesus is. You are the son of God. And this theme of Jesus being the Son of God is, a, is really a key theme in Mark's gospel, especially in the first half, that is chapters 1 through 8. We already saw it right at the outset of his gospel. Mark describes what he's writing as the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We saw it again in chapter 1, verse 11, when he was baptized, the voice spoke from heaven and said, "'You are my beloved Son.'" In you, I am well pleased. And now we get that phrase, son of God, here. And then in chapter 8, when we get to kind of the culmination of this first half of Mark's gospel, we're going to get it again. Um, and the whole point is, in this first half of Mark's gospel, up through chapter 8, it's really exploring this question, who is this man? Who is Jesus? Now, we as the reader, we've been tipped off. Mark told us at the outset who he is. Uh, Mark had John the Baptist tell us who he is. The, the demons know he is. So we've been tipped off to who he is, but the crowds and the people around him, they don't fully know, and they're, they're figuring it out. And so Mark, in telling his story in chapters uh, 1 through 8, is helping us understand and see who he is. And this phrase, son of God, is a key part of the answer. It doesn't just refer to Jesus' relationship with God. It refers to that. He is the unique son of God. He's the son of God in a way that no one else is the son of God. And so it does refer to that, but it also uh, refers to his royal position. For example, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God promises that there's going to be a king on David's throne forever, that Davidic king is referred to with the title Son of God. Well, this is why Jesus is trying to strongly warn these demon-possessed people not to, not to say who he is, um, because 
he's not ready to go public with his identity as the Messiah, as the fulfillment of the promise to King David about who he is as king. And so he's trying to keep uh, his identity under wraps so that the word won't get out because he's got work to do before he's ready for what that's going to entail. So he's he's got this crowd around him. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. Demons are announcing his presence. He's trying to keep them quiet. He's right by the sea and he's got a boat there. And when he's done teaching, verse 13, here's what happens. He went up on the mountain. So he goes up away from the sea, up onto the hill. He summoned those whom he wanted. In other words, he's going to try to disperse the crowd. He's going to call his disciples, his followers to himself along with him. And so he summoned them and they came to him. So from out of this large crowd, Jesus calls his followers to himself up into the hills around the Sea of Galilee. And verse 14, he appointed 12. And so he calls his followers and out of this group of followers, he's going to appoint 12. So he appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. So here, Jesus now is going to appoint the 12 apostles. Out of the larger group of followers, he is going to select 12 to be his apostles, to be his official representatives. And the number 12 is not random. Recall that Israel was originally composed of how many tribes? 12 tribes. What Jesus is doing in his ministry and what Jesus is doing by choosing these 12 is he's intentionally He's intentionally basically communicating that he is forming a new remnant of Israel. The 12 are the representatives and leaders of that new Israel. In fact, Jesus makes this explicit in Matthew 19.28 and Luke 22.30 that he intends for them to be really the leaders of this renewed Israel that is being formed in and around him as their king. And once again, this speaks to Jesus' authority, his authority to call and to appoint representatives that act as the foundation for a new Israel. Now, just a technical note on verse uh, 14 and 15, some manuscripts include the phrase, calling them to be apostles. He appointed the 12, calling them to be apostles. Some manuscripts have that. So some translations might have that phrase in there, but not all the manuscripts have that, and most scholars believe that that phrase was added later to correspond to the parallel passage in Luke chapter 6, verse 13. So Jesus calls the 12 and note what he appoints them to do. Their activity is going to revolve around him, and it's going to include being an extension of his ministry. So he calls them, notice, to be with him. This is a key part of their role as disciples. Discipleship worked by attaching yourself to a rabbi with the explicit intent of learning from him so that you could become like him. That's the way disciples and rabbis worked in Jesus' culture. And so they are called to be with him because that's how they would learn his way and his purposes and how he would transform them to become like him. So they're appointed to be with him. He also calls the 12 and appoints them to preach. That is, he would send them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. This word preach means to proclaim. It's the idea of to act as like a royal herald, to proclaim the kingdom of God. 
And then he also appointed them to cast out demons as an extension of Jesus' authority and as an expression of Jesus' coming kingship or kingdom. They are going to cast out demons who are those dark spiritual powers that oppose God's will and God's purposes in humanity and in the world. And so they are demonstrating their extension of Jesus' authority by casting out demons. And so he calls the 12 and he appointed them. And then what Mark does in verse 16 and following is he lists off the names of the 12. Uh, So here are the 12 apostles. Simon, to whom he gave the nickname Peter. That nickname Peter means rock. And though Peter is impetuous and shaky all throughout, really, Jesus' uh, ministry, Jesus clearly saw the potential in Simon Peter, so he gives him this nickname, Peter, uh, that's fitting to it. And in fact, when you keep reading the New Testament, Peter eventually becomes a key leader in the early church. Just look at the book of Acts. Right from the beginning, Peter is central. He is this rock-like figure in the early church. Next, we have James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them, he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they are brothers and they're fishing partners with Simon and Andrew. And we're not really sure why Jesus gave them this nickname, Sons of Thunder, Boanerges. It may be because they were a bit hot-headed. We see, for example, in uh, John's gospel, they wanted to call down fire on the Samaritans. We see uh, elsewhere that they they come and they ask for the chief seats in Jesus' kingdom. And so maybe because of their hot-headedness, maybe because of some of that expression of almost like a temper wanting to call down fire, maybe that's why he gave them this nickname. We just don't know 100% for sure. What we do know is that James becomes the first apostle killed for his faith in Jesus. You can read that story in Acts chapter 12. And we also know uh, that the apostle John, the brother of James here, John outlives all the other apostles. And John's responsible for the gospel of John as well as 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and the book of Revelation. Uh, And so he outlives the other apostles and actually dies of uh, old age at the end of the first century. So you got Peter, you got James, you got John. Next is Andrew. Andrew is Peter's brother. Uh, Both Matthew and Luke place his name right after Peter's because he was his brother. Uh, My guess is Mark probably rearranged the order and put James and John first because Peter, James, and John served as like Jesus' inner circle Uh, And they are with Jesus at some unique moments where it's just Jesus and them, for example, like the transfiguration. And so my guess is Mark probably just moved Andrew down in the list because of that. So you get Andrew, you get Philip, who is only mentioned here in Mark and then in a few places in John's gospel. Uh, We have Bartholomew, which Bartholomew is actually this guy's family name. Bar means son of, so he's the son of Tholomew or Tolmai. Um, and some of I actually identified him with Nathaniel, who is connected with Philip in John's gospel, John chapter 1, 44 and 45. Don't know for sure, but this is his family name, not his personal name. He's the son of Tolmai. Uh, then we get Matthew, whom we met earlier in Mark's gospel. He's the tax collector that uh, earlier Mark referred to as Levi. So we get him. We get Thomas. 
Uh, Thomas is known as the one who doubted Jesus' resurrection. He is also uh, called Didymus, which means the twin. So presumably Thomas had a twin brother. Uh, and church tradition tells us that Thomas is the one who traveled to the east, and he actually preached the gospel in what is now India. So uh, Thomas, and then we get James, the son of Alphaeus, and it's possible, don't know for sure, but it's possible that he is a Levi Matthew's brother. Uh, why? Well, because Levi is also referred to earlier in Mark's gospel as the son of Alphaeus. So maybe uh, Levi and James were uh, brothers. Not sure, but it's possible. And James also may be uh, described as James the Younger in Mark 1540. That may be another way of referring to him in Mark 1540, James the Younger. So we get James, the son of Alphaeus, then Thaddeus, and then we get Simon the Zealot, uh, which is another Simon. Simon was a common name. In, uh, among the Jews in the first century. So we get Simon here, and he's described as the zealot, which could refer to his religious zeal, but more likely it refers to his patriotic fervor, his kind of anti-Roman sentiment and fervor, uh, which as that kind of grew and spread, zealots were known to oppose the Romans deeply, sometimes even to the point of trying to kill them. So Simon most likely has that sort of background, which is interesting. You pair him up with a guy like Levi Matthew, who worked for the Romans, right? Inherent tendency to be tension between those two because of their heritage and their background. So you get Simon the Zealot. And then last of all, we get Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And the meaning of that subtitle, Iscariot, uh, is debated, but most see it as a reference to the town that he was from, Kerioth, uh, which is a, actually a town in Judea. And if that's accurate, then Judas would have been the only disciple from Judea and not from Galilee. And we know from the Gospels that he served as the group's treasurer. And not only that, he was the treasurer and he also kind of skimmed some money off the top uh, for himself. And as noted here, he became known as the betrayer, the one who betrayed Jesus. This whole little section here, though brief, is a significant move forward in Mark's narrative about this, this life and story of Jesus. Jesus has now appointed his leadership team, his closest disciples. In fact, from this point on, they are going to be constantly with Jesus and the word disciple, more often than not going forward in Mark's gospel, is going to refer to the 12, at least primarily, maybe including others, but that's going to be the primary focus of it. And by being with Jesus and following Jesus, they are going to be trained to do what Jesus did and thus extend Jesus' ministry. Ministry, and so we see that Jesus' kingdom is beginning to grow.